0: Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the afternoon. Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. As I mentioned earlier, please say a prayer for Al's healing. Uh, he is presently unwell, but he's recovering. From the days of the apostles, the church's pastors and teachers have met, and we find this all the way as early as Sacred Scripture in the Book of Acts. And the, these pastors and teachers, these early bishops, have met, when necessary, to defend and explain the Catholic faith. From the Council of Jerusalem in the Acts of the Apostles, through the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Trent, and Vatican II. These meetings of the world's bishops are some of the most important events in the life of the Church, and arguably the entire world. And they become one of the most profound expressions of the Church's unity and teaching authority. We talk with Paul sins. Paul earned a Master's of Arts in Pastoral Ministry from the University of Portland. His writing has appeared in many publications, including Catholic World Report, National Catholic Register, Adoremus, Our Sunday Visitor, and Catholic Answers. He's the author of Fatima, 100 Questions and Answers about the Marian Apparitions. Paul, how are you doing?
1: I'm just fine. How are you doing?
0: I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Thank you for asking. So uh, I, I, I finished your entire book. I, f- I found it. There's a certain brilliance in how you wrote this book. You you could have said a lot more per question, but you did a very good job of distilling what was necessary historically and, and pedagogically to answer each question, and there are literally 100 questions for those of you wondering. It's called Church Council's 100 Questions and Answers. So I want to ask you, Paul, first of all, what prompted your desire to investigate and write on this topic?
1: Well, there are so many topics that are broad and hard to kind of wrap your head around when it comes to, when it comes to uh, things, you know, theological or ecclesiastical or what have you. And I, I have a number, a number of, I, I have a list of ideas for, for uh, books that might, that might be a good fit for this hundred questions and answers format. Cause the, the great thing about that format is it can take this huge topic and Kind of distill it and make it easier to grasp, at least in a kind of basic, fundamental way. You know, and then maybe may be a jumping-off point for further investigation. And one of the things that I was thinking about was that when you're looking kind of an overall examination of the of the uh, church councils, the ecumenical councils, mm-hmm. it's a it's a pretty good survey of highlights the, and lowlights, if you will, in the church's history. It doesn't address everything, obviously. As, you know, there, there are plenty of great church history books out there by by uh, really gifted church historians, and on specific topics and broad surveys and everything. Um, but I thought this would be this would be a good way to to kind of hit the highlights of the church's history, uh, some of the most some of the most fundamental teachings of the church in uh, a really basic way, and then hopefully uh, it will serve as a, a kind of an encouragement to people. Dive deeper into the aspects that they encounter in the book that they're more interested
0: in. Right. Okay. So, and I'm 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 really glad that you went ahead and and started compiling this this book in this way. I think every faithful Catholic who wants to know kind of a cursory overview of the 21 ecumenical councils ought to pick up this book. So, tell us about the councils. What makes them ecumenical? Or what is a valid council, and what isn't?
1: Yeah. So. You know, we hear the word council in a lot of different contexts in the church's life. You know, you got your pastoral council, your finance council, your presbyteral council, you know, a gathering of people uh, for for various purposes. But usually when we talk about the church council, we're talking about the ecumenical councils. You mentioned there have been 21 so far. It's a, it's an extraordinary uh, exercise of the church's teaching authority mm-hmm. in typically
0: In fact, you, when, you, when needed. you you make a very specific mention of that in your book that they don't happen on very regular intervals. There was quite the gap between the, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's the Council of Trent to the First Vatican Council, and the reason for it yeah, was but, because there was no reason to call for it.
1: That's right, and there and in, in some cases in the in the kind of Middle Ages there were you know, maybe just fifteen or twenty years between between the Councils, and then between between Trent and the First Vatican Council it was like three hundred years. You right. Know, it's, it's makes them ecumenical is that they are gatherings gatherings of you know the, the pastors of the universal church so you've got all the bishops of the world gathering together to teach the universal church with the pope as their head all together teaching the universal church on on these matters like i said whether it's disciplinary doctrinal whatever uh, and then the the the, the Promulgation of the, the the council's documents or decrees or whatever by the Pope is kind of that that final seal of approval. Uh, in fact, there have been uh, there have been count, ecumenical councils, councils that we now recognize as ecumenical, that when they were first called and when they were held were not necessarily intended as such. You know, they were but they, uh, they were intended as a local council for the Eastern Church, that kind of thing. But then after, after the council, the Pope then promulgated that council's decrees uh, for the universal church, ma- making it an ecumenical council at that point, point. Uh, and, and in the, I, I mentioned that it's all the bishops of the world. In the earlier uh, councils, the earliest centuries of the church, that number was very different. <laughs> you know, you've got a couple of hundred, two, three hundred bishops, something like that, right. whereas at the Second Vatican Council, it was thousands. You know who, who, who gathered it. So, the the scale might have changed over the years, over the centuries, but the the fundamental structure, uh, purpose, and function has always remained the same.
0: You know, we we have one of those titles that is often thrown around when a council is is called up, and it's called a council father. And we remember particular individuals as council fathers. We remember, you know, people like Saint Nicholas, uh, amongst others. You know, the, the, throughout the history of the Church's council, you you can really evoke particular individuals who stood up as real real figures. So, uh, but, but it's not just them who are council fathers. So this term "fathers of the council" ha- has a broader, more all encompassing uh, scope. Yeah, it's
1: um, it's not just the you know we, we have. We talk about the, the church fathers is this kind of select select group of particularly influential uh, writers and theologians from the earliest centuries of the church. Mm-hmm. With the council fathers, this is going to be the you know the, the bishops who are in attendance and who are who are uh, discussing, debating, praying, and voting on on uh, the, the matters at hand. So, uh, and you know, with the Second Vatican Council, because it was so recent, because there were so many. People involved, uh, and because it was so uh, so thoroughly covered by the media, mm-hmm. um, we know so much about it, and uh, we have we've had several several popes who were uh, council fathers before being pope. You know, um, so it, it really is it really is uh, uh, an important role that the bishops of the world play when these councils are
0: called. Now, there's an important reason why I bring up that question, and that's because, in the in the subsequent part of your book, you talk about how councils were sometimes interchangeably called synods in in early church history or, or kind of throughout the history of the church's writings. But there, there's a slight distinction to be made. What is it?
1: Yeah. So, so now the the term synod uh, has taken on a more a more partic- particular meaning. Uh, now, when we talk when we talk about synods, which, you know, which we, we hear about them all the time now, the uh, synod on the family and the synod on Synodality that's coming up, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the synods now are as opposed to the uh, universal teaching body that that is the Ecumenical Council. What a synod is is more like a, an advisory body to the Pope. So, what you'll have at the synod is is a number of bishops, as well as priests, uh, you know, sisters, theologians, whatever, who who will be invited to participate, uh, who will be involved in these discussions on a particular topic. Uh, And at the end of the Synod, they will present a document to the Holy Father. Maybe you can think of it as, uh, depending on what the topic is, and what the document they present says, you could think of it as either, a, a, you know, some suggestions or advice or points for reflection, uh, that kind of thing. And then from there, the Holy Father can do with it what he wants. Mm-hmm. Typically, especially in, in recent decades, typically what what he'll do is then, based on the work of the Synod, he'll then produce a, a document called a, a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. That's so, right. He'll, he'll write this. He'll write this document. Uh, uh, publish it out for the church uh, On that topic So if the synod was on The church in Africa To write an apostolic exhortation on that topic And put it out there so it's, it's a teaching document and Points for reflection, that kind of thing But it's a very, very different uh, Very, very different beast From the, this extraordinary Function of the magisterium
0: Absolutely, and just going off of your point of the writing of a post-synodal ex- exhortation, uh, one of the last, and, and you know, frankly, one of the greatest post-synodal exhortations ever written in church history, was by Pope Benedict XVI, Verbum Domini, and it, what it does by piggybacking off of De Verbum and and explicating in this tremendously rich and 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 profound way that the role of sacred scripture in the life of the faithful is astounding. Uh, so, so there really is a role to be played here. Synods uh, are, are not wasteful events; they they truly are gatherings of the faithful for a particular purpose. And the Holy Father ultimately reserves the magisterial authority to do with the findings of the synod or the discussions of the synod what he wills for the sake of the faithful at large. That's right, and uh, of course,
1: we we know. Uh, trust that the Holy Spirit will continue to protect the, the Pope and, and the Magisterium from teaching error. So even if a Synod were to meet uh, and, and decide to recommend to the Pope any number of uh, uh, doctrinal changes or, or even even, even uh, logistical changes that, that would not conform with the deposit of faith, we can trust that he would, at best, shove it in a drawer, <laughs> and, or, or, or even tell them, tell them, uh, take this back and come back with something better. You right.
0: know. So uh, the, the the music's just hit. We're going to close up this segment, Paul. We're going to continue the conversation on the other side of the break. We're talking to Paul Sins. Uh, he's the author of Church Councils: One Hundred Questions and Answers, published by Ignatius Press. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta, in the afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. We're gonna continue our conversation with Paul Sens about the church councils, the twenty-one ecumenical councils of the church. He wrote he authored a book called Church Councils One Hundred Questions and Answers published by Ignatius Press. And it's a, it's a very handy little book that allows anyone a cursory overview of the church ecumenical councils and their roles and purposes and what they achieved in the history of doctrinal development and in the history of defending the, the deposit of faith that has been handed down by Jesus Christ. So Paul, I want to continue the conversation. You were talking about the difference between synods and councils. And you also make mention in question six and seven in your book about how there is a distinct difference between people attending a synod versus the bishops who are at the synod. And sometimes even in a council, there might be lay members attending this, the, the council, but they don't have the same role as magisterial authority do. So wh- what is their role? What's their purpose there?
1: Yeah, so there, there is that difference between those who are those who are there, those who are assisting, those who are advising, or you know even journalists who are covering it, whatever. Those those who are there in attendance, and uh, the bishops who, um, especially in the context of the council, the, the bishops who are exercising the, that teaching authority. Mm-hmm. So, so it all it all kind of comes back to this question of authority. I um, actually want to. I'll, I'll take the opportunity here to plug a, another great book. Um, Why well, should I say a great book rather than uh, giving my own too high praise? Uh, but a, <laughs> a great book by Jimmy Aiken that Catholic Answers Press published. Right. Uh, was called. I think it was called Teaching with Authority. I think that's what it's called. That's uh, a fantastic book uh, that really goes into detail uh, about the the teaching authority of the Church of the bishops, uh, different ways that that's, that that's exercised. Uh, the Pope himself, the bishops together, the bishop within his own diocese, the bishops within a given region, the Ecumenical Council, the Synod, all these different things, uh, where that authority comes from, how it's exercised. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it comes down to with the Ecumenical Council uh, and synods and everything else, is do they have this authority and if so where does that authority come from how is it how is it properly exercised and then the question uh, that kind of flows from that is wh- what is the the role of the lay or what is the uh, responsibility i should say of the laity in response to that teaching authority um, and so back to your question the bishops have this teaching authority mm-hmm. because they are the successors to the apostles the apostles were given this authority to teach and the responsibility to protect the deposit of faith by Jesus himself. And then that was then passed on to their successors. We know the bishops are not themselves apostles, but they are the successors to the apostles. That teaching authority and that responsibility, profound responsibility to protect and and defend the deposit of faith that we have handed, handed on to us through sacred scripture and tradition, that is their responsibility, and one of the ways that's exercised is is uh, all of them in unison at the, at the ecumenical council, um, and that's, so that's the main way in which uh, their role is different from those who are attending. Um, and they usually, we saw this at the Second Vatican Council, just for example, the bishops will usually bring with them to the council theological advisors or mm-hmm. you know their their personal secretary their particular advisors so uh, then Father Joseph Ratzinger you know, who would eventually become Pope Benedict Sixteenth, of course attended the Second Vatican Council as a theological advisor for his right. bishop um, he wasn't a bishop himself so he was not a council father mm-hmm. um, the future John Paul II was a council father John Paul I all the six all of them were council fathers before being before being Pope uh but uh, Father Ratzinger was just a theological advisor, so he had a very different role from his bishop there. But it all comes down to that, that uh, uh, teaching authority, uh, and again, not just the authority, but that responsibility that the bishops have.
0: Right, absolutely. And th- this then raises uh, questions that the late he have had about the citadel on that's uh, c- quickly coming up here in August. If you take a look at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops website, uh, the re- the most recent update on the invitee list of the people attending the Senate, uh, the Vatican released its first list. I don't know how many subsequent lists are going to be released as a result of this, but apparently more than a quarter of the voting members, these are members who've been given voting privileges as part of the Senate, they're not bishops, and of them, about 54 uh, are women, and these are being highlighted, but... Yeah. We, and and that's fine. None of none of this is a willful repudiation or a a willful turning our back on tradition and the conciliar tradition of the church. If anything, there's a long precedence for things like this to have happened in the past.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and uh, as I as that kind of alludes back to uh, what I was saying about the, the distinction between ecumenical councils and synods, where there's there's nothing wrong with with the non bishops having a vote at the sentence because it's it's merely an advisory body you know you mm-hmm. could, you, could, you could take a poll of anybody you want uh, and and tell the Pope here's what these people think uh, but the Senate itself does not have uh, this magisterial teaching authority uh, so so yeah there's, theres there's nothing wrong with that and as you say there's there's quite a bit of precedent for that uh, but the one of the important things is, is for people to understand the difference so that because I'm you know there are those who who take those lists of invitees and say look look at all these women on here see you know they'll, they'll say something like see the the, the the church is headed in the direction of of uh, women deacons and women priests and women right, right. and women being authority in these various ways well no that's not that's not at all what this means and
0: or, or even a, a grand alteration of the church's t- uh, perennial teaching on marriage and the family or the human person. And, yeah. uh, and the fact is, and we, we ought to make very clear, in fact, I, I, w- I want to take this opportunity to make very clear to everyone listening, nothing in the deposit of faith is going to be substantially changed through any synod, including the synod on synodality, because we have an obligation to, as, as you mention actually in this book, Church Council's 100 Questions and Answers, we have an obligation to continue to receive and to hand forth the deposit of faith untainted as given by God, as given by Jesus Christ. We, in other words, while there might be quote-unquote doctrinal changes, the updating is in the, 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 the expression and the language, but the substance of it will always remain completely intact.
1: That's right. You, you will you will not see, for example, no synod will ever will ever result in the Holy Father saying something like, uh, "Well, God is not a Trinity, but there's actually four persons," or or uh, <laughs> or uh, Jesus Christ is only is only uh, metaphorically present in the Eucharist. No, not, not, There's not a chance of that. Not not one solitary Jesus.
0: Right, right, and it's an impossibility because you actually cover that reality, papal infallibility, in your book, and, and you, you term it pretty aptly. You call it an insurance policy. I've never heard yeah. it described that way before, it, it made me chuckle when I came to that page. So uh, tell us about papal infallibility, and then we'll talk about the role that that doctrine plays in ecumenical councils.
1: Yeah, so we know that, that papal infallibility is, um, like, like like I said in the book, it's an, an insurance policy of sorts. It's 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 not a belief that the pope is always perfect, or that everything the pope says is profound, or that everything the pope says, or even that everything that comes out of the pope's mouth is true. None of that is the case. What papal infallibility says is that we, tr- we we know that the Holy Spirit will will protect the the pope from teaching error in matters of faith and morals. So even if a Pope were to privately, personally express his opinion on a matter of faith and morals, even, even that could be erroneous if he's, if, he's not, if he's not exercising his his teaching authority. You know? Right. It's a, very, it's a very particular set of circumstances in which he is acting in that role, in that context. And we know that the, the Holy Spirit has been promised to the Church uh, for protection against that error because we we have that gift because we need to be able to trust the church's teaching Uh, so Christ gave us very graciously gave us that gift right Uh, so and it's been there, there there are very few times where in the church's history where that has been uh extraordinarily exercised. Yep. But of course there is the even even the ordinary magisterium of the church is protected by the holy spirit.
0: Mhm. And that's exactly where I was going to uh, steer you to talk about that there's an ordinary capacity of papal infallibility and and thereby magisterial infallibility in as much as it is in communion with the holy father. But but the ex- extraordinary Expressions of papal infallibility. Perhaps the last one was in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis in 1994, when John Paul II wrote about uh, how the door to women ordination, the the as a discussion topic even, was completely closed. He says the church has no authority whatsoever to confer, confer priestly ordination on women. This is not something that raising funds and and accumulating supporters is ever going to change. There's a definitive value to this doctrine that the church has received in hand and will continue to hand down.
1: Yes, I've always loved the way that he phrased it in that letter because he didn't say, he didn't, put his foot down and say, I refuse to, I refuse to change this. He expressed what, what's true, which is the church has no authority to do so. Mm-hmm. Just like the church would have no authority to change the matter, of the, the valid matter of the Eucharist. You know, the church could not say that, that instead of bread, it could be something else that there's, there's no authority in the church to do that because the church is not, is not Lord of the sacraments, you know? Right. right. Just, just as an example uh, and so so it's it's about protecting that deposit of the faith uh, and and teaching it and that we can trust that those teachings are
0: are true absolutely so for those of you listening, if you're wondering, uh, we are talking about here this in this specific instance, John Paul II's uh, letter entitled Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, written in 1994. It's an apostolic letter. And he not only says the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, he then goes on to say and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the church faithful. So he says... We don't have the authority to change this doctrine, and we, the faithful, have an obligation to all, universally, definitively, hold this. No, no, no other option. This is it. This is all we have.
1: Yes. Yes, and then I, I, if memory serves, uh, in the aftermath of that, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Saints under Cardinal Ratzinger issued a, a kind of an explanatory note uh, emphasizing that point, and, and, and emphasizing the fact that that was that the Pope was speaking infallibly uh, in line with the ordinary and universal magisterium.
0: We're going to continue the conversation with Paul Sens, author of Church Council's 100 Questions and Answers. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the afternoon, Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta, talking to Paul Sins, author of Church Councils: One Hundred Questions and Answers. And we're going to finish off this segment by trying to wrap our minds around the, the purpose of ecumenical councils. Paul, I want to continue that conversation that that we had just before the break, and uh, it, in order to do that, I want to steer steer us in a particular direction. One of the biggest problems that arose, and you you highlight this in your book, as a result of the Second Vatican Council, is that it was very quickly received with at least two very big factions. Uh, People were split into those who thought that the Second Vatican Council meant a complete departure of all things that we had received before, as if... The the fate prior to that had made innumerable mistakes, and now was the time for liturgical and doctrinal experimentation, and that's what the church really needed. And then there was the other side who, owing to an overreaction of that first side, uh, saw the entire council as, as a divisive work. And loathe anything that was close to modernizing, as if modernizing by itself was completely sinful. So, you, and you highlight these. So, so give us an overview of what happened in in terms of how the Second Vatican Council was received.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. say <laughs> how, how the Second Vatican Council was received you can just as easily say how the Second Vatican Council is being received. <laughs> that's again, fair, that's fair. You know what I mean? It's, an, it's a kind of ongoing, uh, I don't know if battle's the right word, but but uh, but there are these kind of, kind of factions uh, of, of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, the One of the classic ways of talking about it is there are those who are talking about the spirit of Vatican II, um, which, frankly, a lot of the time, that phrasing seems to be, seems to be used as a, as license to interpret the council teachings, however you want, you know, they'd say they I've the spirit of Vatican II, as opposed to the letter, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, right, the, the right. documents say this, but here's what they meant, or here's what they wanted us to take away from it. Um, even if that's contrary to what, to what the, to what the words of the document say, um, and uh then there are those who who really dig into the documents themselves and say you know for example well hang on this this here doesn't say anything about about uh, mandating universally the vernacular in the mass mm-hmm. and in fact in fact it says that the faithful that the that the congregation even should know the latin of the ordinary and that chant has pride of place and that the organ is the is the, you know, uh, preferred instrument, mm-hmm. uh, for liturgical use and all, all these things. Uh, the, 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 Second Vatican Council was not by any means intended to be a, a, a vehicle for, for carte blanche and, and, uh, fill, filling in the blank however you want. Right. Um, but, but there, but there, there have been these different column, you know, schools of interpretation, uh, and, uh, Ways of thinking as as to how the docu- the, the council's teachings should be applied, right? Um, and there there, there were there, there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, uh, interesting developments at the Second Vatican Council as far as how how things were phrased and how things were were explained. Mm-hmm. You know, one one of the big ones would be uh, that that's a big point of of contention for some people is how the Council treated non-Catholics and even non-Christians in, in various documents. Um, so that that even the way that those documents were phrased, and these, these things go over months and sometimes years of, of discussion and debate and voting edits and changes and everything. That's right. Before, before these documents come, come in their final form, mm-hmm. which is then approved by whatever, by whatever vote, and then passed on to the Holy Father, who then you know, gives it the final approval and promulgation. So it's not like these things were thrown together haphazardly uh, without, without careful consideration <laughs> of every word and every, every jot and till, you know.
0: That's right, uh, that's right. It's not like the Council Fathers sat together and played, oh, oh gosh, what's the name of that? Uh, it's that game where you know they're, they're blanks, and the the council fathers raise their hand. Oh, I want that word there. I want that word there. And and, and in reality, it. no, it was it, yeah. it was a lot more uh, elaborate and intricate than that. So much revision and so much thought and prayer and discernment went into the authoring of, of the documents of the Second Vatican Council.
1: That's right. Um, and when you really dig into the documents, when you really read them, you can see that you can you can see that these are these are carefully crafted. Um, theological masterpieces, you know, um, that, that that certainly shouldn't be uh, disregarded out of hand or um, tur- turned into whatever you want for your own purposes. You know, these are... This, the, the, the council did, in fact, say and teach certain things. Um, and sometimes they get dismissed, dismissed as a, you know, pastoral council.
0: Mm-hmm. Which, for one thing,
1: I don't know why that would be a reason to dismiss a council.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: Pastoral teaching is and, and, and pastoral ministry is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, I think it was I think it was Bishop Barron. I read talking about the Second, the Second Vatican Council and this idea of a pastoral council. I think it was him that made the point that uh, even even if there are not fresh, newly phrased. Dogmatic declarations being 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 promulgated by the council. It is still teaching infallible, universal, uh, magisterial teaching. It is it is it is still teaching infallible teachings, even if it's not uh, promulgating, uh, you know, newly phrased or newly defined infallible teachings.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. And and that that brings to mind that a certain kind of and you know pardon me for saying this judgmentally I like all of us are guilty of this but that there, there might be a certain kind of hubris if you will to approach a magisterial text and and to say well okay there's completely nothing new for me to learn here. The fact yeah. is, if, if if Augustine's words are to be taken at, at, if Augustine is to be taken at his word, in chapter 4 of book 1 of his Confessions, he talks about how uh, God is a beauty ever-ancient, ever-new, bestowing yeah. wisdom and knowledge upon even the aged. It doesn't matter how old we get. There's always something that we ought to learn—a blindside that that God, in His benevolence, wants to illuminate for us. And and the second Vatican, you know, the the funny thing is, for all the detractors and the critics of the second Vatican of the Second Vatican Council, I don't know if I've personally met a, and, and I might be wrong in this, but I don't know if I've personally met a single one who has studied in depth every single one of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. It, it, it's, it's just like the, the the grand host of people who despise the Catholic Church for what they think it is versus what it really is. And like you mentioned, there's this adage called the spirit of Vatican II that, that seems to it, incur the the terror of all who hear those words, you know, the spirit of Vatican II. When in reality, yeah. if we were to go to what the documents and what the Council Fathers intended— You can see that there really is a pastoral heart, and there might have been some issues in the way some things were enacted in different parts of the world, but the Holy Spirit truly worked and is still working through the results that came forth from the Second Vatican Council.
1: That's right, absolutely. And it it continues, that work in the Church continues and uh, will continue.
0: So, uh, you you go on to touch briefly on these terms that came out during the Second Vatican Council called aggiornamento and resourcement. So, uh, t- no two words were used more widespreadly by the Second Vatican Council in terms of talking about its desire for theological renewal than those two words. So, help the average Catholic understand those two words and how they apply to how we ought to understand the Second Vatican Council.
1: Yeah, so... One of the one of the things the council desired and 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 was doing was to get back to was to was to kind of uh, I almost want to say freshen up the the way that the church teachings are presented to the world um, and to return to to the sources, you mm-hmm. know, to, to get back to sacred scripture, to get back to. The church fathers to get back to the writing, the writings of the saints um, and and how can we how can we present that to the world today a world that is increasingly hostile to hostile or even indifferent to or to what we have to say mm-hmm. you know the the, the the world more and more it seems is not antithetical but but even just just doesn't want to hear it doesn't want to hear it and when they do hear it they choose not to accept or or not to care about these 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 important things we're talking about so then how can we how can we uh go out into the world and teach these things and also even more more uh, of an internal question you know inside baseball kind of a question let's get back to the sources get back to the heart of it get back to sacred scripture get back to sacred tradition in understanding these teachings of the church and uh, those kind of uh, fundamental kind of fundamental uh, policies if you will for for how the council's work progressed um, and uh how it's how its ongoing implementation uh, has also kind of progressed in the church
0: right. You know, those words, aggiornamento and resource smart. Uh, adjurno means a kind of uh, renewal, if you will, d- d- very yeah. loosely translated into renewal. resource means a return to the sources, just like you mentioned. But even in the process of the application of both these directional principles, the Council almost presupposes, in the language of all its documents, a very consistent hermeneutic of continuity. And what I mean by that is this yes we want renewal in terms of you know bringing a, a re-enlivening if you will of of the teachings of the church and its application in the pub in the public sphere as well as in in the sphere of the parishes and in the lives of the faithful dei verbum is an invaluable resource to revitalizing the need for sacred scripture in in the life of every single member of the faithful let alone the parish and the church at large Now, that being said, what a hermeneutic of continuity is, is a lens through which we ought to view all of this continuing from the time Jesus handed it down. So the the council wasn't actually seeking to create a firm doctrinal dogmatic departure from her age old tradition in the proper sense uh, you know tradition like that which was handed down right she wasn't trying to completely pivot and say throw the babies out with this with this renewal bath water instead what she was saying is no let's let's represent this in a way that modern man has some capacity to hear it because like you mentioned in your book in your book paul the average person doesn't speak latin anymore the average bishop probably doesn't understand latin anymore if another council were to be called it's definitely going to be pretty prominently multilingual. And that's just one yeah. of the many reasons why there had to be a renewal in the presentation of these theological doctrines that the church has in her riches. That's right.
1: Absolutely right.
0: So uh, just talk about very briefly then from there. And we're coming up to the close of the hour. We'll talk about very briefly then uh, how can people reach you in, in the work that you're doing in writing and whatever not?
1: sure uh, well I am I am technically on social media although I'm not very active <laughs> you know they can, <laughs> they can find me on, on, on Facebook and Twitter and um, Instagram not that, not that I'm not that I do very much but if they want to reach out to me you know um, and then uh, you, you can, you can you Google me you can find my, my articles here and there and then uh, my books so far have been up from Ignatius Press go to Ignatius.com and I always tell people to check out your local Catholic bookstore too and make sure to support them
0: Okay, well, thank you very much for talking to Paul Sins, author of Church Council's 100 Questions and Answers. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon.